If you have your Bibles, turn in them to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. If you don't have your Bible, the scripture we'll be looking at is also inside the bulletin. You can take a look there. There's also a place to take notes. We're going to be looking at Mark 9, verses 14 through 29 today. Before we read that, I want to just set our minds on what we're doing here and why we're doing it. We're in a series called Following Greatness. And in this series, we're talking about what true greatness is. And there are lots of different ways that our culture and the world define greatness. Chad already in the intro and the call to worship sort of set our minds in some ways. Um, Jesus, in these verses, in these two chapters, is challenging us by showing us what true greatness looks like in the form of a life that matters. Okay? True greatness. Jesus' greatness is a life that matters. It's making a difference in the lives of others. Um, and, and it brings the greatness of satisfaction. Okay? So many other kinds of pursuits end up not satisfying, but Jesus brings um, a greatness that satisfies. Now, the, from the culture's perspective, we think about greatness as, well, in the finances, you're great if you can buy whatever you want. Right? In relationships, you're great if you have relationships where you don't have to change. Right? People love you just as you are, and you don't have to do anything. You don't have to change at all. In morality, if you can do whatever feels good, you've reached a level of greatness. Um, in the area of our time, if you have time to pursue all of your hobbies, like that's a truly great life. You know, How's your life? Oh, my life's great. I was able to do this amount of hiking over this last month. I was able to do this kind of craft or, or engage in these sorts of things. Um, and then with stuff, greatness means having everything you want. I mean, summing this kind of stuff up, it seems like we want to do what we want and don't, without having to do anything. Okay, and at the core of this version of greatness, I think, is independence. It's kind of ironic thinking about that on this weekend, but I think that that's what the belief is today, that greatness equals independence in our culture. Um, and I think this is actually a skewed version of the history of our own country, the skewed version um, 239 years ago, we threw off tyranny, right? We told the world that no one was going to tell us what to do. We made it really clear that we could govern ourselves and we can do what we want. Um, and so, now, even if you don't personally define greatness like this, we are surrounded by messages that try to convince us otherwise. Okay, advertisers bombard us with these kinds of promises. Um, I saw one this morning. There was a, there's my phone bill, like on the back of my phone bill with T-Mobile. It says this, upgrade when you want, not when you're told. Right, this is greatness according to our culture. This is what advertisers appeal to, that you know what, you have a right to be able to upgrade your phone whenever you want. You shouldn't have to wait you shouldn't have to postpone anything. You shouldn't have to be faithful to your current phone at all. You should be able to get rid of that thing as soon as you're tired of it and get a new phone. Right? Upgrade when you want, not when you're told. I think this is what the media constantly parades in front of us. Rich people who get whatever they want. Famous people who seem to live above really any sort of need. Um, now, 
the good news is that we have tabloids that show us that actually they don't get everything that they want and they don't have everything that they need. And so in some ways, tabloids are some of the underbelly. Not that that's, boy, what a society where we need tabloids to do that for us, right? Um, but for us, even people that have a sense that something's wrong with the way that that greatness is, it gets under our skin and we become dissatisfied with what we have or don't have. And we start aiming at the greatness that they define. Now, Jesus comes along and he says, I want you to know very clearly, like this, this is manipulation. Okay? This may just be a company trying to get your business, but you need to understand that this is appealing to something that's inside of you that's flawed. It's trying to coax you into thinking that what you really need is independence. And Jesus says independence isn't the path to greatness or happiness. Independence can't actually deliver. Jesus didn't live this way himself. And in this passage, we see how we can follow Jesus' greatness. And so we're going to look. We're going to read this, Mark 9, verses 14 to 29. So if you'll read with me, we'll also have this verses up here on the screen as we go. Friends, listen, this is God's word. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out. And they were not able. And he answered them, Oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And it is often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. And the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them thought or said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why can we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. This is God's word. Amen. That's right. Amen to God's word. Jesus is returning. If you've been with us for any length of time, he's returning from this experience he had up on a mountain with three of his disciples. Right, where he was transfigured, and during that moment up on the mountain, he received this incredible assurance from God. This was a powerful experience, both for Jesus, 
to strengthen him and give him what he needed to face the road ahead, also for his disciples. But the moment that he comes down from the mountain, immediately he's greeted by this mess. So I was reading it. Did you, did you like, relate to it? Could you identify with what Jesus was entering into? Oh, you didn't get it? Let me summarize. Jesus, the boy's possessed. Your disciples can't heal. The father doesn't believe him. This whole generation is faithless. That's what Jesus walked down the mountain and entered into. Now can you relate? I mean, isn't this Monday morning after the vacation? I mean, this is the chaos of the home on any given day, vacation or not. Um, This is sometimes having a great day and then coming home to a roommate or a spouse or a family that doesn't understand you or doesn't seem to care. Um, Or this is like being inspired at a life group and feeling so close to God on the way home, but then when you get home, you fall and you look up porn, you spend the night looking at porn and masturbating. Right? You have these great experiences, and then it seems like right after those great experiences, hell erupts. Well, in the last two verses of this passage, Jesus reveals the underlying problem that produces this mess. Okay, the disciples actually go back to the house. Uh, they go back to the house with Jesus at the end of all of this, and they spend time talking about what happened. And I want you to realize that that's what they're doing. Look, verse 28. And when, they had, when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately. And so this was a practice of Jesus and his disciples. The process of Jesus spiritually developing them included them going away together in private and asking each other, So, what happened? How's it going? This is a big thing that we need to have as part of our lives. Okay, this part of the process of spiritual development is getting together and talking. It's debriefing on both our successes and our failures. Okay, we all need to be getting together with other believers, and this does happen often in life groups. It also happens in discipling relationships where you call, you come together and you say, hey, how are things going? Right? How are you doing sharing your faith at work? I know you've been working on that. You've been trying to get better at that. I've been praying for you. How's it going? And you have a conversation about that. Right? Or, hey, I've been praying for you to be more patient at home like you asked me to. What's going on with that? Or, you know, you have that friend that you've been trying to help out, you've been trying to minister to, and it's been challenging for you to you know, sort of get time. Again, I've been praying for you. How is that going? Right? These are questions that are integral to Jesus' own developing of his disciples. He's training them, and not just training them to be Christians, but he's training them to be leaders. And so again, this is the path for all of us. Like We need to have these sorts of conversations with each other um, as an ongoing part of our own spiritual development. And so they come together and they say, Jesus, what happened? Man, why couldn't we cast this out? Because they've been casting demons out for several chapters at least in Mark's Gospel. We've seen this happen So this is at least a few months of success. They want to know, why has that success stopped? And the answer that Jesus gives them is 
simple, but it's life-changing. Okay? Jesus says you can't exercise demons except by prayer. Right? That's what verse 29 says. This cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Now, you might think initially, hearing Jesus say this, that Jesus is saying, hey, disciples, look, you didn't say the magic words. Right? You were in the situation, you didn't say, Lord, please heal these people. Right? You, you forgot to say that. You just tried to heal them with your hands, and that's why it didn't work. So you didn't say the magic words, of course it's not going to work, guys. Haven't we talked about this before? That's not what Jesus is saying. What Jesus is saying to his disciples is a profound truth that will influence and change everything about you and your life. Okay, what Jesus means by this sentence is he's saying, disciples, you cannot do ministry without God. You cannot live your life and think that you might help someone else without God. You can't heal people without help. You can't do this on your own. What you want, what all of us want, we know that God has a, a vision to renew the world. God wants to fill this world with his power, with his healing, with his love. You can't do your part in renewing our city. You can't do your part in helping other people to experience the love and the power of God without a relationship with him. This is what prayer is. Prayer isn't simply saying some words to give you a feeling of calm. Okay? Prayer is not emptying your mind so that you can just not think about anything and get to a place of zen. That's not what prayer is. Prayer is living your life dependent on the presence of God. That's what Jesus is telling the disciples. And so he's given them a key to describe what real greatness is. What he's saying here, according to Jesus, greatness equals dependence on God. Okay? Greatness in the eyes of God. Greatness in terms of building a life that will truly and lastingly satisfy you. I think ultimately make you happy is being utterly dependent on God. Like, that's what real greatness is. And so, prayer is living life dependent on God. I don't know what you think about when you think about prayer. There's lots of different kinds of prayers. There's lots of different ways to pray. But at the core of what prayer is, prayer is you consciously, actively recognizing that you are dependent on God. That's what prayer is. Prayer is God saying, look, you need me, just admit it. You need me, so like, live like it. I am here, I am available, I have better than high-speed internet. I, the access that you have to me is incredible because even if every person in your neighborhood is taking my attention 
it will not affect your connection to me. I mean, our internet, we buy a giant pipe of internet and we get nothing because I think it's oversold in our neighborhood. Um, and so what AT&T cannot do, which is actually deliver the speed that we're promised, God can do. Um, he is always available no matter how many people are talking to him. And that's one of those things that truly makes me worship and in awe of God. Right? I can't listen to two different... Sometimes I can listen to two different people at once. And yet God has this ability... I mean, God truly wants us to live our lives dependent on him in a relationship with him where we are constantly telling God, I need you. I need you for this. I can't do this. God, I really want to see this happen. I really want this to happen in my life. I really want this to happen in the life of someone else. And I can't make that happen. And even with the strength that I have, even with the desire and the part that I can play, God, I need you here, working in front of me before I get there, behind me after I show up, to the left and the right of me so that I don't you know, say the wrong thing or you can help guide. Right? That's what prayer is. It's living life dependent on God. I mean, this is why the Bible says, pray without ceasing. Like, this is what it's talking about. It's not saying that you have to actually have a running dialogue all the time. It's saying that you need to have a life and a lifestyle of dependence on God where you recognize, I need God in my life. I need who he is. I need what he's like. I need his character and his love. I need his presence with me all the time, especially if I want to have any kind of influence, any kind of renewing influence on my coworkers, my colleagues, my neighbors, my family members, right? All of that flows out of a dependence on God that's expressed through prayer. So Jesus says this um, in part because what happens when we're dependent on God is that it allows God's greatness, right? You want to be great? Well, Pursue it on your own, and you're not going to make it. But if you pursue God and you're dependent on him, his greatness actually flows to you and then through you into others. So when we understand that this is the point uh, that Jesus wants his disciples to get from the end, it really does help us understand where all the mess in this passage comes from. Right? Thinking about this situation. Right? All of this comes because people aren't depending on on God, right? The boy is possessed. So just to dive into this a little bit, um, either the boy or his father or the boy and his father, they've opened themselves up to a power of evil in their lives, okay? Demon possession at its ultimate doesn't happen by accident. People can willingly give themselves over to the power of an evil spirit. Um, typically, people are deceived into doing that, um, Spirits, I think, through temptation, um, in all kinds of ways, tempt us. And what they do is they promise the world, like, if you'll just get angry at this person, you'll feel a lot better. That's how it starts. Um, if you will just, just not worry about what's right and wrong, just go ahead and pursue the sexual desires that are in your heart. You'll be happy. You'll feel fulfilled. The desire, the temptation to be bitter. Um, all temptation in one sense can lead to 
even greater powers of evil taking over our lives. Um, but I guess what I want you to see is that when we see demonic spirits in the Bible, they give us a window into the extreme power of sin and evil in our lives. Okay, because anger can control us, right? You've felt that way before, you know, where you just snap and you feel like, I, mean, I couldn't. Like, I just couldn't deal with the situation. I had to lash out. Um, sexual desires can control us. Bitterness can control us. And these sins, they hurt us. They actually ravish us, just like this boy gets ravaged. Right? In verse 22, this demon often casts him into fire and water to destroy him. Right? He's foaming at the mouth. He's grinding his teeth. Evil promises freedom and independence. Oh, you can do whatever you want. Oh, you can have it your way. Oh, no one should be able to tell you what to do. But the reality is that sin, demons, they are like an abusive spouse. They're like an abusive boss or a pimp or a drug pusher. Because again, they promise you freedom, but the moment you begin to turn away, they turn on you. And the physical violence from the demon, I think, is a picture of the spiritual violence that happens to us. And so we see that um, this boy being possessed, this is the result of, in some ways, the father or the child opening themselves up. Perhaps pursuing freedom, but not dependent on God. And this is where it leads. Um, and then the disciples, right? The disciples can't heal, right? They think they can do this ministry on their own. And so they're not praying, clearly. They're not seeking God. And so what Jesus is telling them, he's saying, don't you realize, guys, you can't do this without God. I've given you power. I've given you authority. But that power and authority, it flows from a relationship of dependence on God. Like that's where it comes from. That's where your power and authority come from. And so even though I have called you, I've ordained you to be my apostles, I've sent you to be my messengers, you cannot succeed without an ongoing dependent relationship with God. Why? Well, dependence on God gives him the credit when something good happens. Right? If you're not dependent on God, then it all ends up being about you. And we're going to find that this is a lesson that the disciples are loath to learn. Um, the disciples are out doing ministry on their own strength. I mean, they literally have in some ways cut themselves off from God, and they're trying to bring God's kingdom without the king. And so Jesus is saying, look, you've started by a dependent faith in God, but you want to finish as though it's all about you. And what's ironic is that in this passage, there's only one person besides Jesus who understands this. There's only one person besides Jesus who gets this idea of dependence. And he actually shows us how we can grow and understand what dependence is on God. Jesus says the solution is prayer in verse 29. And that's exactly what the boy's father does in verse 24. I love this. Look what he says. This is a prayer, right? He's talking to Jesus. He's praying. He says, immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. 
So the father here is desperate, right? He wants to see his son healed. Jesus is giving him hope if you just believe. And so the father is like, great, okay, I'm in. He trusts Jesus' words. He believes, but he also knows that his own words have shown doubt. Like even with Jesus, he says, man, if you can do anything, have compassion. Right? His own words have already showed that he is struggling. Right? He's doubting. But what redeems him, in a sense here, let's go to a blank slide next. Um, what redeems him, I think, is his honesty. So what we see here in this father's cry of faith is his faith and his doubts. This father is not trying to pretend like he's better. He's not saying, hey, Jesus, okay, fine, yeah, yeah, okay, I believe. I believe I'm in. He's honest. He's honest. He's like, look, Jesus, I believe you. I believe you can help, but truth be told, I'm still struggling here. I have doubted today already. I doubted your disciples, and I doubted you by saying, if you can. And so will you please help my unbelief? I don't know about you, but I find myself here in this Father's words. Have you ever used this? This is a great prayer. When you're struggling, when you're not sure, there are lots of people who have a sense of God, they have a sense of Jesus, or, they have, or they've been following Jesus, and yet something comes up in their life, something happens, or they read something in the Bible, and they think, wow, gosh, that doesn't make sense. How could God really be good if this happened? And doubt creeps in. Have you ever felt that way? The culture shifts, begins to say different things about morality, and all of a sudden you feel out of place? Like, wait a second, it sounds like the culture is nicer than God is. And you begin to doubt, and you begin to wonder, and you don't know what to do with this. You just sort of stuff your doubts, and you hang on to them. Those things grow. What doubts will do if left unchecked, if left untreated, is that they will grow bigger and bigger and bigger in your life until, like, the doubt becomes so big, it sort of pushes your faith out entirely. If you're feeling that way today, will you please pray the prayer of this man? Say to Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. Tell Jesus, I have faith, I trust, and yet there is so much going on in my life, or there is this one thing that I can't reconcile, or I'm struggling in this one area of my life. That's the kind of honesty that brings healing and resurrection. That's what happened for this father. It's this father's prayer, right? It's this father's prayer of broken faith. It's this father's prayer of if black is atheism and white is perfection, the significant shade of gray, right? He both believes and he doesn't believe at the same time, and he recognizes it, and what he does, he just admits it. Jesus, this is who I am. This is where I am. And Jesus says, I'll take it. Jesus says, that's good enough for me. 
There's another place where Jesus says, if you have faith even the size of a mustard seed, you can move mountains. Why is that? I mean, because aren't we supposed to have great faith? Aren't we supposed to be like these champion stalwarts of faith where nothing can affect us and, 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 and it's the power of our faith that brings all kinds of good things into our lives and brings God's blessings? I mean, there are some conversations where that's something that we need to strive for. But Jesus says that if this is where you are, this is good enough. Jesus says, if you believe in me this much, miracles can happen. And that's exactly what happens. Jesus rebukes the unclean spirit in verse 25. Mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter again. The demon doesn't leave without a fight. This is important to understand that if there are spiritual or just sinful habits in your life, if there are things that are taking control of you, they may not leave without a fight. They don't want to leave without a fight. They want control. They're not interested in you, no matter what they promise. They're not in your best interest. They want control. And they will not leave without a fight. But when you come to Jesus, he is stronger than any kind of sin. He's stronger than any kind of evil. I have friends that are in real battles trying to get out of sin. They're trying to get free. They're trying to break loose. And it's a struggle. It's a struggle. And Mark combines this miraculous exorcism with a resurrection from the dead. Right? The spirit comes out, convulsing him terribly. In verse 26, the boy was like a corpse, so that most thought he was dead. And we don't know if those who thought that were right or not, but what we do know is that Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. Lifted him up, arose. Those are both words that are used in the New Testament to describe the resurrection of Jesus. And so what we see here again is that Jesus enters into our sin and brings resurrection. This is the power of the King. And I just I want to underscore this reality that um, it's not the size of our belief, but it's the object of our faith that matters. So it's not the size of your faith, it's the size of Jesus' power. Okay? That's what matters. And so it's not, in some ways, it's not the size, um, it's not the strength of the confidence that we have, but it's the strength of what we're confident in that matters. Because you can have all the confidence in the world that a thread will hold you up from the ground. And you'd be wrong. Um, this hit me. Um, Lainey and I took a trip to Hawaii for our 20th anniversary just um, uh, about a month ago. And during this trip, we, we took a helicopter tour of the island of, uh, of Kauai. And it was unbelievable. It was breathtaking. It was transcendent in amazing ways. And there were probably four or five experiences on this helicopter ride that I just, that brought me so close to our Creator, um, both as one who made what we were looking at and the one who inspired someone to invent what we were flying in. Um, 
And so we had this amazing experience. And I was talking to a friend after the trip. We were talking about this helicopter experience. And he told me, oh, yeah, we did the helicopter tour in Hawaii. And I absolutely hated it. I'm like, why? He said, well, because the entire time I was so freaked out that the helicopter was going to crash. And I had no confidence. And he's, I mean, literally, like, it robbed his joy. And he's like, and given the amount of money I spent on that trip, like, on that, on that excursion, he's like, I was pretty frustrated about it. And I thought, gosh, like, that is, like, to me, that connected with what Jesus is talking about here, uh, about what it means to have faith, uh, this, you know, big faith, small faith, that both me and my friend took a helicopter tour. Right? We both made it back safely um, because of the strength of the helicopters that we were in. Right? It's the object of our faith, not the strength of our faith. And so we both made it back because the helicopter we were in were, were sound. Okay? And so if you have a small faith or a big faith, if it's in Jesus, you're going to be saved. He's going to work in your life. But there was a difference in the quality of experience that we had on the tour. Okay? And so this is where the size of your faith will actually matter. Okay? Um, I had an amazing experience because I trusted that the helicopter was going... I didn't worry about the helicopter. Um, and the first thing that the helicopter driver said, the flyer said was, I've been doing this for 25 years in case anybody wants to know. <laughs> I was like, oh yeah, I guess I probably should have thought about that. But no, good, that's great, he's got this. He's done this before. If he's coming back, I know I'm coming back, right? So, um, so we'll be okay. Um, the point is that I had this amazing experience because I trusted. I trusted in the helicopter, whereas my friend had no trust, and so he was worried about it the entire time, and it severely disrupted and hindered his experience of life on the tour. And I think the same thing is true for us. The same thing is true for us. A small faith, an incomplete faith, a doubting faith will get you to Jesus and he will work in your life. His resurrection power will come into your life. But the greater your faith grows, the more your faith deepens, the more you understand who Jesus is and what he can do, the greater your experience of the gospel and the good news will be as you live day to day. Does that make sense? So that's good news. The key is honesty. The key is honesty. Um, one author said this. This is N.T. Wright. He said, The only thing to do is to get on the first rung of the ladder, ask for help, and start climbing. That's what it is, to be dependent on God. You get on the ladder, say, Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief, and you just start climbing. You just start climbing. And so, what does it look like? What does it look like? I think it's pretty simple. Like, what would Jesus call us to so that we can live a truly great life of dependence on God? Here's what I want you to do. I want you to pray. I want you to cultivate a lifestyle that includes this kind of relationship with God. It's not complicated. It's not complicated. I just, I want you to pray. So let's just do this. Think about the coming week, right? We have seven days before we're going to do this again. What would happen if in the next seven days you depended on God in your life? 
What do you think would happen? I can tell you my own experience. Even just this last week, um, I went into a situation and I was meeting with someone um, and I was very nervous about how the conversation was going to go. I didn't think it was going to go well. I was nervous and um, I prayed like mad. I prayed like mad. I, I said to God, God, I'm going in and I want to see great things happen, but I can't do these great things. God, you have to do great things. And it's not just me and this other person, but there's other forces that are involved here. There are other things that are trying to pull, you know, that, that pull this person away. And, um, and so, God, will you please show up? And so, entered into the conversation and it, was, it wasn't going anywhere. Like, it was awful. Like, it was depressing. And I'm sitting there thinking, like, I'm a failure. Like, I don't have the answers. I thought I had answers, but this is, no, this is going nowhere. And so, in the moment, I'm like, Lord, you need to work here. God, I can't do this. You need to break through. I can't change anybody, but that's your job, not mine. I'm here because I want to share the good news about who you are and what you've done and what you're like. I'm convinced it's the greatest thing this world has going for it. This person isn't. God, can you do something here? And a few minutes later, we started talking about, we sort of shifted topics, and we were talking about different worldviews. We were talking about the different um, religions and different ways that other religions sort of describe the world. And we started talking about um, creation and how most other religions think that physical matter is bad. Um, and as we started talking about that, I said, well, gosh, like, that's not the Bible's view. Like, the Bible's view, actually, is that God made this world, and he made it glorious. He made it wonderful. Like, it's beautiful. It's amazing. And, and I said, you know what? Like, think about, I mean, think about what, what God has made. Think about the beauty of it. But then you think about, like, think about beer, right? Think about beer. And this is a big beer drinker, so, you know, I knew that that was going to find some purchase. Um, God made stuff ferment. And then he inspired people to invent, like, how many different craft beers are within, like, a 40-mile radius of where we live? 91, thank you. Um, <laughs> um, and then I said, think about sex. Like, think about sex. Like, God was the one to put all the nerve endings where they all line up in ways that actually make this this incredible experience. Like, how is that bad? How is that evil? How is that rotten? And in fact, like Jesus actually coming is an affirmation of these things. Whereas it seems like most other religions are saying, like, we need to get out of this place. We need to escape. There's sort of this disembodied evacuation mentality about the future that we're looking for. But what Jesus says is that the stuff that you know is good, the stuff that you know brings you joy and pleasure, that's a gift from God who made it and is going to redeem it. Not just in the incarnation of Jesus, because he actually affirms creation by coming himself, but in the bodily resurrection of Jesus. He is not going to leave this creation to die, to burn. He's going to redeem it. He's going to renew it. It's going to become new again and perfect. And in this resurrection, Jesus teaches us 
man, that these other views of life that want to escape are not God's design. And it was like the Spirit descended. I mean, in, in, in my dependence on God, God showed up and brought resurrection. Brought resurrection. And so, friends, this is why like, we need to be praying. This is why prayer is such a huge thing, because I didn't know what to say. I wasn't sure what to do. And I had prayed and prayed and prayed, and then all of a sudden in the moment, like, I needed to pray again some more. <clears throat> It was like, man, this one can't be driven out by anything but prayer in the moment. Right? Not just preemptive prayer, not just prayer preparation, but in the moment. Right? There are forces here that we can't deal with, that we're not strong enough to combat. And so, for us, how about this week? We focus on cultivating, again, just for seven days. Just say, hey, for one week, let's see what happens. And let's pray. Let's pray together and cultivate this kind of dependence. Um, we have our, our city Bible reading journals. I mean, these are, these are wonderful because they actually show us how to pray. Um, and so I got a summary um, up here of just how to pray dependently. You can do it. City Bible reading will teach you how to do this, but it's, it's simple acrostic, the Acts acrostic. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. You can pray this prayer every day. You can pray it on the hour. You can pray it in the moment. Adoration is just saying, God, you are dependable, and I worship you. God, you are faithful. You are dependable. If I put my eggs in your basket, you will not let me go. And I adore you for that. I worship you for being a God who I can trust. Confession. God, I don't depend on you. I try to do things in my own strength. God, I think that it's up to me. God, I think if I can just come up with the right answers or the right Bible verse... I could convince anybody of anything. And I'm sorry for that. Because God, I live and act as though if I just show up, things will, things will go great. And then T is Thanksgiving, where we're thanking Jesus specifically for his salvation. So Jesus, thank you for depending on God. And the reason this demon came out is because Jesus was perfectly dependent on the Father. He knew that in his own strength, even as a human being, he could not make this happen. But Jesus, thank you for depending on God and for dying for my life of independence from God. Jesus, you took my sin. And in this awful act, think about the cross this way. Maybe you haven't done this before. But the cross is Jesus actually experiencing complete independence from God. That's what every life of independence in the ultimate sense will bring. Cutting off from God, apart from all that he is and all that he does, Jesus experienced that for us so that God would bring us back to himself when we say, Lord, I believe even though I'm not perfect. Help my unbelief. And then supplication is just saying, Spirit, remind me to depend on you. Remind me I can't do this on my own. Help me to think about, okay, here's my schedule for the day. I've got these four meetings, but this one is a doozy. I need you here, please. Help me. Remind me to pray right as I walk into this meeting. Or when I get home, I have this habit of blowing up at the kids. In the car, please, before I get out, please meet me. 
and remind me to depend on you and to remember your love for me. Friends, this is true greatness. These are the lives that are renewed with the Spirit of God that will renew the city and bring the Spirit of God into our homes, into our neighborhoods, into our workplaces. This is real greatness. And it's the kind of greatness that really just opens ourselves up and lets God's greatness flow into us and through us. Let's pray together. Jesus, this is what we want. We confess collectively that we live apart from you in ways that are foolish and stupid. And when we think about them, it's like we know we don't want that. Thank you for coming and saving us. Thank you for coming and being the one who is totally dependent, showing us, even in your humanity, what it's like for us to be great. Help us this week to depend on you and to cultivate that dependence in prayer. Jesus, for those who are here who don't know you, would you help them to come to you and with whatever small sliver of faith they have, show them that if they would cry this prayer, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief, that you'll meet them there and begin to work. We thank you, and we give you this coming week. We love you. Amen.